we asked ourselves the question whether there was a need for safety or a need for refuge. And the important thing about that question is that it needs to come from right here now so we can just check in, especially if you're feeling a little bit <coughs> more settled than yesterday evening. Just to reflect, is there a need for a refuge? One thing you might be noticing now that even though your body fe feels relatively good having just had some walking, you can feel probably that, um, that it's not easy having a body and it's going to start to hurt after sitting all day. Or maybe it's already hurting. Or we can even have a sense of, like, uh, this is really nice being here. And as soon as we kind of split our life into this is nice, that means something's not this nice. You know, like my home life or out there. So even when we're feeling, I'm, I'm not saying you do feel this way, but <laughs> even if you are feeling serene, and comfortable and happy, it doesn't take too much imagination to see that we still want safety or still need safety or refuge. And then the second question last night is, well, does such a refuge exist? And then the third question is, well, what is its nature? So I want to talk tonight about one particular um, instruction from the Buddha about whether or not this refuge exists and what's its nature. And uh, we'll just continue the discussion and, and I'll continue the talk and we'll continue the discussion for the next couple nights as well. But tonight, this, this basic point that the Buddha offers us, which is, yes, there's a refuge and this refuge is within. So the Buddha is suggesting to us that where we tend to seek our refuge in the things of the world, which include our ideas, that that's not it. That it's something within. One author said, what we are looking for is what is looking. And I talked a little bit about this last night, that there's something very simple and pure and available that the Buddha is pointing to. One of the more famous teachings near the time of his death, the Buddha said this to Ananda after Ananda was lamenting the death of Sariputta, the Buddha's chief disciple, who was a a really important mentor for Ananda. And the Buddha said, after telling him, reminded Ananda that everything that arises passes. And reminding him that even though this great monk has died, that the teachings haven't been diminished in any way just because somebody's passed away. And then the Buddha said, be islands unto, unto yourselves, be refuges unto yourselves. Hold fast to the Dhamma as an island. Hold fast to the Dhamma as a refuge. Seek not for refuge in anyone except yourselves. Whosoever shall be an island unto, the, unto themselves and a refuge unto themselves, it is they among seekers of enlightenment who shall reach the heights. So, of course, the Buddha is not suggesting we become self-centered. That's not what he means by taking refuge in ourselves. It's not the personality we take refuge in. It's basically something not outside of this moment. It's in the very nature of the mind or the very nature of the heart that we're taking refuge. And Milarepa, an 11th century Tibetan saint, says something similar where he he says, um, 
I attain all my knowledge through observing the mind within. Thus my many thoughts become <coughs> the teaching of the Dhamma, an apparent phenomena for all the books one needs. So I thought it would be good tonight to begin um, this particular talk, this reflection, with each of us remembering the first time, or one of the first times, we had the wherewithal to look within, and what that was, what that meant for us, or what that looked like for us. You know, especially as younger people, we're very much focused on getting things, or um, seeking our happiness in terms of the particulars of our life. But at some point, we got interested in turning within. Or maybe we're right at the point of getting interested in turning within. But just think about that for a moment, where you first came upon this teaching or this instruction to turn your attention within or to look within. Or even the teaching about it somehow described or pointed to the limitations of everything that's not within, everything outside. remember distinctly a couple things. I did this reflection earlier this afternoon and one thing I remember, it's a, not exactly what I was talking about, but I think it's related. When I was very young, uh, I mean not an adult, I was probably 10 or 12, somewhere in there. And uh, I just realized at that point the amazing power of imagination like that I could entertain myself just by imagining things. I mean, of course, I was doing that before that point, but it was almost like a reflex. And it wasn't until that point, you know, when I was however old, 10 or 11 or 12, where I realized that I, I have this basic this uh, uh, entertainment system built in, and I could leave the world by imagining things. And I think that's, that, that itself is an insight, like uh, we have this capacity to distract ourselves profoundly. And I didn't quite get it at the time that our, our kind of normal existence is that. <laughs> that that's just as much an imagining as what I would do, you know, when I would just kind of go off by myself and imagine some other reality. But more directly to the point of this reflection, um, I mean, I can remember a specific time when I just, and uh, just hearing about the teachings about turning within and meditating, just like this profound kind of feeling like, wow, this is it. I mean, at that point, I had become a pretty sophisticated about the limitations of the world. And uh, so I was, you know, looking, I was definitely searching. And it's just astounding that we don't look within. I mean, it really is astounding that we, we have our lives. It's like, uh, you know, the metaphor of the fish that doesn't know water. We have this life, this inner life, this inner this space of the mind or this inner space of the heart. And we have virtually no curiosity about it. Because it can't be conceptualized or taken a hold of, it's just like off the radar screen. And what we pay attention to is those things that we can directly perceive with our five senses or think about, conceptualize with our thoughts, our words.
Any anybody have a particularly interesting story about when you first discovered this possibility of turning the mind within, using the mind to look back on itself? Another example around this time, uh, doing just that, um, I was thinking a lot about death. I know some of you have heard the story before. I was uh, like in, I guess I was 23 or 4, and I was doing a lot of reading and thinking about death and what it, that means and imagining that state of dying and not existing. And uh, that really brings up this sort of deep sense of wanting to survive, this psychological or feeling of, you know, not wanting to cease to exist. And uh, at some point, my mind just sort of flipped back on itself in that reflection, because, of course, I was conceptualizing death. I was thinking about it. But I was also using my own experience, like what it feels like to not be dead now, you know, and then to imagine not that. And uh, so as I was doing that, Mind sort of did a backflip and uh, asked the question like, well, who would, where's the problem? Who would be bothered? And it may not sound like much, but what was, what was uh, amazing is that it was the first time the mind questioned what the mind is, what I took the mind to be. And we never do that. We never. We just assume we know what the mind or the heart is. Right? Does anybody sort of have any doubt what your mind or heart is? I mean, we just we have this amazing arrogance about this inner space. You know, what we take to be the self, who I am. We just think, well, I don't need to investigate it because it's me. So this is the direction the Buddha points, is using the mind, the heart, to look back at itself. So when we do that, it, it like it's a revolution in the kind of questions we ask. So instead of like normal, our normal questions is, are things like, well, what can I do to be happy? What can I do with my life to be happy? What kind of choices should I make to be happy? What do I need to avoid in order to be happy? What should I be thinking about to be happy? What should I not think about to be happy? But once we do this backflip with the mind, and we realize that, that there's something to know here, then the question, questions or question becomes, well, what is this? What is this thing I take the self to be or the mind to be? What is this here? What is its nature? One teacher said that about this transition that goes from understanding life in terms of the problem that the self has to understanding our life in terms of the problem that the self is. <laughs> and we open up to um, two things, really, when we start to look in this particular way, use the mind to know the mind. The first thing, unfortunately, is we begin to see how messy it is. You know, we see this tangle of neurotic habits, obsessive habits. We just see the messiness of our habits. And it's so easy to get discouraged. And it's really easy to focus in on these messes and to miss the other thing that can be seen when we look within, which is the empty space of the heart or mind, the luminous empty space of the heart and mind. I'll talk more about that tomorrow night. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the nature of the mind as it's talked about in, Bo in the Buddhist tradition. 
But tonight I'll talk a little bit more about when we use the mind to know the mind, how not to get discouraged by what we see. Because that's such a common thing, to be discouraged by what we see. And there's such a funny part in Sharon Salzberg's book. Hopefully some of you have read it, uh, Faith. It's a really nice book. And uh, she talks about going on a retreat. And about going on a retreat a long time ago. And they rented a place, I think, uh, Martha's Vineyard or Cape Cod somewhere. And in that house, there were some books. And one of them was the Peanuts book. I guess actually it was on the desk where the room she was staying. And you, you might remember this particular uh, one where Schultz, the cartoonist, would have Lucy in her little doctor's booth. And uh, so she's in her little doctor's booth with the doctor is in sign, and Charlie Brown is sitting there. She says to Charlie Brown, you know what your problem is, Charlie Brown? The problem with you is that you, that you're you. (laughs) Of course, Charlie Brown is crushed and says, well, what in the world can I do about that? And in the final frame, Lucy says, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. <laughs> so this is this can be our predicament. You know, we get a sense that I'm me. You know, that I am this collection of neurotic habits and fear and cravings, and it's enough to drive us crazy, literally. To see this collection of conditioned habits is really intense. It's really intense to start being sensitive to the conditioning in the mind. Yesterday I talked about um, this Four Noble Truths reflection. So the first step, of course, or I don't know if it's the first step, but one way to practice with this kind, this this, uh, new level of sensitivity where we are able to see the mind and see the conditions in the mind is to uh, immediately drop into the, the pain right in the heart. So not to stay on the level that, boy, is my mind screwed up, or these are really unproductive habits. How did I get these habits? I must be the worst person in the room, or... You know, why are we all like this? Or I'm not so bad as this person. So that's our tendency when we see these uh, habits. We want to think about it because it gives us a semblance of control if we can think about our bad habits, the limitations of our mind. But the Four Noble Truths reflection is asking us to go right to the hurt, right to the ache, right to the uneasiness, even the nausea, the unsettledness of a mind that has this habit or a mind that's like this. To go right there and to practice absorption or intimacy, really welcoming it in. This is how we reveal the other half, the other sort of half of this insight. So I said, when the mind does this backflip and we use the mind to know the mind, two things arise. We see the messiness of our habit energies. We see how the mind's been conditioned. And we see the essential inherent space of the mind or freedom of the mind. But generally, the second is obscured by our tendency to fixate on the first, which is, my God, it's a mess in here. Because we're still in the mode of taking everything personally, feeling responsible for the the mess in our mind. So the way that we um, keep touching, opening to the second insight of space or freedom is we have to drop into the pain 
the residual pain of our hurt, of these habits. In a sense, this is what Millerape was talking about, where he said uh, how the thoughts, you know, all his thoughts became the teachings of the Dharma. So in that mess, you know, in learning to be intimate with the mess, we're really seeing the three characteristics. We're seeing that these thoughts are ephemeral, they come and go. We're seeing that any attachment, any identification with the thoughts, even beautiful thoughts, is suffering. And we're seeing the conditional nature of the thoughts. This is the this is why this path is called practice. This particular aspect really is practice. Learning being willing to return over and over again. I mean, I don't think it's I don't think it's wrong to say like I don't think it's, think it's an exaggeration to say that there's basically one humiliation after another. I mean, that doesn't describe our entire life, but if we really pay attention on this level, then we're basically seeing one humiliation after another. Because this, on this level, the condition, the conditioning of the mind, doesn't work. It's like it's fundamentally limited, and so it will constantly be making mistakes because of its limitations. And we do one of two things. What we usually do is we cover up the mistakes the conditioned mind is making. And the transition is we're getting interested in the mistakes. See, we won't actually let go of our identification with the conditioned mind, with these habits <coughs> of mind. We won't let go of them until we see directly over and over again how limited they are. And it's really what's so interesting is that our life works much better when we're not identified with the conditions of the mind. We think that like to get through a situation in our life, like to get through our intimate relationship or to get through our job or to get through the retreat, that we have to rely on the one thing we know well, which is our conditioned mind. But if we really look, we see that it's not up to the task. Our conditioned mind is never really up to the task. One of the advantages of having really bad conditioning is we learn this lesson more quickly. <laughs> For those people who have relatively skillful conditioning, it takes longer, right? Like if you're, you know, part of your conditioning is to be generous and patient and kind. It's like you cruise through life. And it may not occur to you to look at the limitations of the conditioned mind because the conditioned mind works reasonably well, certainly relative to other people who seem to be having a very hard time in life when we look around. So there are advantages. And that's why the Buddha taught that human existence is so useful. I mean, as a stereotype, because if you're in a more refined realm, you're basically like those people you know who seem to do pretty well, although they're not self-reflective at all. But they're reasonably happy. They seem to move through life reasonably well. And you wonder, well, they don't meditate. They don't have any sort of obvious um, practice of using the mind to know the mind. So how, how, how is that? Maybe I should do what they could do. Well, if we could do what they could do, we probably would. But if we're in the place where our life is a balance between happiness and suffering, 
then we have this other possibility. Because without suffering, we don't wake up. The Buddha, in, in several places, talks about this, about the, the place of suffering. There's one sutta where he says, just as practitioners, when rain pours down in thick droplets on a mountaintop, the water flows down along the slope and fills the cleft gullies and creeks. These being full, fills up the pools. These being full, fills up the lakes. These being full, fills up the streams. These being full, fills up the rivers. These being full, fills up the great ocean. So too, with suffering as approximate cause, faith comes to be. With faith as approximate cause, gladness. With gladness as approximate cause, rapture. With rapture as approximate cause, tranquility. With tranquility as approximate cause, happiness. With happiness as approximate cause, concentration or unification. With this unification as approximate cause, the knowledge and vision of things as they really are, or insight. Dispassion, with dispassion as approximate cause, liberation. And the interesting thing in this teaching of the Buddhas is that it starts with suffering. Suffering is the necessary condition for liberation. That's sort of interesting. Because suffering does one of two things. This is another talk the Buddha gave where he said this. I'm paraphrasing now, but he said something like, suffering leads to either more suffering, you know, he goes into great detail about beating of your breast and lamenting and sorrow, lamentation. So that, so suffering either leads to that or it leads to search. It leads to waking up. We basically uh, rethink our strategies in life. That's one of the things suffering can do for us, is it can be the cause for us to ask, what am I doing? How is the mind relating or holding or or being in this moment? And does it have anything to do with the experience of suffering? So it sets up, it possibly, it doesn't always, of course, or a lot of times we suffer, and all it does is lead to more suffering because we lament or we wish it weren't so. But sometimes, when the conditions are just right, the experience of suffering is the cause for an authentic questioning, a wholesome questioning. What's going on here? Or as the Buddha said in that particular sutta, is there anybody who knows anything about suffering? Because if there is, I'd like to read or see that person or hear from that person. So we, we go looking. We ask our friends. I'm suffering. Do you know anything that works? You know, my, I feel limited by my mind and by, by, by this life. We look for people who don't seem to be suffering and we see if they can share anything that's useful for us. Some people who aren't suffering can't share anything useful. I mean, either the, the, because they fit that first example where they haven't had enough suffering to ever question, so they have no reason to understand why their life is the way that it is. They haven't been reflective at all in their life. There are a lot of happy people who aren't reflective at all. And there are people who are really happy and who are reflective, but can't articulate what happened for them. So even people who are fully enlightened, even people who are fully enlightened without anybody else's help, they're called Pacheta Buddhas. So these are beings that have the same realization of a Buddha, the, our historic Buddha, but just aren't articulate or aren't able to sort of share what they've come to know, the freedom. They're really nice people to be around, but they can't uh, give us good instructions. I mean, we might pick up a little energetically just being in their space, but they don't have the talent to understand what their mind did and then articulate it in a way that's useful. So I think that's kind of interesting that it, you know, we have to look for somebody who has some insight and who could articulate it. 
And what's amazing to me is somebody did that, you know, evidently someone did that 2,600 years ago and was able to capture the process and concepts and, you know, conceptual models in a way that's still really practical for people in a totally different culture, a totally different time, but it's still really useful. So what's useful, what's useful for us being on retreat and then just generally is to um, be really practical about remembering this backflip, this backward step. You know, normally we can characterize our lives as having some forward momentum. So this, the self is in search of happiness. That's that forward momentum. And this backward step is we're letting go of that basic way of relating in life, which is the search for happiness. And so the backward step is a step toward understanding, not toward happiness directly, but, but trying to understand who wants to be happy, or what is this the nature of this wanting to be happy? How does it come to be, this wanting to be happy? Who is it that wants happiness? Where is this happiness to be found? So we do this uh, backflip, and uh, then both the um, the glimpse of the essential freedom of the heart and the understanding of how we work with the messiness in the mind, it's good to have a placeholder to remind us about both of those things. And this is where it gets a little tricky. Without a placeholder, without a symbol, we tend to get caught up again in this stream of our culture, which is just to seek happiness in the world and to be content with distraction. And so we need to create powerful enough symbols or placeholders. So, of course, you know, we have things like a statue. And some of the statues, you know, we look and we see, oh, the Buddha has a really serene look on his face. And that can remind us, you know, here's the Buddha living out in the woods, wearing robes made of rags, you know, eating whatever is served to him, dealing with a bunch of people who probably had problems with authority figures, <laughs> like we all do, and uh, all the, you know, and all the other stuff that happens in life, with the human body, with the human mind. And, you know, as a symbol, you know, they always, the artists always do the best to uh, give the statue the characteristic of serenity, peacefulness. And the Buddha has different mudras, you know, ways of using his hands. Uh, sometimes you see the Buddha with the hand up, not like this. This is a, this is a mudra of dependent origination. It's sort of the wisdom teachings. So another one, the Buddha has his right hand up, which is the fearlessness mudra. You know, don't be afraid. It's okay. And one, sometimes he has his hand touching the earth, which is uh, asking the earth, Mother Earth, to bear witness that he's done his practice, that he's not confused by his mind anymore, by the conditioning in his mind. Sometimes you see the samadhi mudra, either with both hands or even just with one hand, and that's the, uh, the tranquility or the um, quietness of the mind, the stillness of the mind. So we have these various archetypes or symbols to remind us about what's possible, about turning within. And it's good to remember that. Like, I remember another time, this is like a, about a year into my practice, my meditation practice. I was living in Berkeley at the time. And uh, I was just, uh, fortunately, one of my best friends from college was uh, ended up 
going to graduate graduate school where I was at UC Berkeley, and uh, and we both had discovered meditation uh, apart from each other, and then ended up back together. That's really nice. And so we're both pretty gung-ho practitioners, uh, sitting every twice a day in the morning and the evening. And one day in the evening, we were just sitting there, and for whatever reason, my mind really quieted down in a way that it hadn't before. And I'd been pretty serious for a year, every day, almost every day for a year, maybe a couple times a day. And uh, But my mind that evening, for whatever reason, really quieted down. And I was just so amazed. I mean... It just, it kind of uh, was astounding that, you know, I, I, I remember that sort of like, I'm just here in this ordinary room with my ordinary friend doing this practice that I've been doing, and and I was just feeling like this very deep peace and tranquility. And I was just like, I mean, it just like completely changed my relationship to all my sense desires, like... Uh, Good food, you know, sex, good literature, and you know all the different things that I liked. It just made it like this felt so good. And all I did was quiet my mind. And I just, it just felt like, like discovering I'm in the candy store, <laughs> and everything's free and available. Of course, <laughs> those moments have been pretty rare. But you know, it doesn't. It doesn't really matter because as soon as we know that that's there and it's free and it's available, it really changes our orientation towards the world. That that kind of happiness and peacefulness. I mean, it's such a it's such a unique kind of pleasantness that shows up the other worldly pleasantnesses that we're more used to. Of course, there are many placeholders that we can use. And the important thing is for each of us to find the placeholders that work for us, that inspire this faith or this confidence that we can turn within and it's to our, it really uh, leads us to what we truly want, what we really want. So this is the reminder that we need. Otherwise, we're going to get distracted by all the enchantments of the world, which, of course, when we're enchanted, they seem like that's what we want. Because we somehow get confused. It, and it's not to say that those things aren't pleasant, but they're just temporary. There's really no lasting satisfaction there. And seeking them conditions the mind to seek other things. So there's no end. It's like gratification doesn't lead to some end. I mean, just think about how many times we've been gratified. We've actually gotten what we sought. And yet, we still seek. We haven't actually stopped seeking. We don't seek less because we've been gratified in the past. Seeking gratification reinforces seeking gratification. It doesn't reinforce gratification. It reinforces the seeking of it. So just reflect on what the placeholders might be for you, the symbols that inspire confidence in turning within. You often see the Buddha sitting on the lotus, which is sort of an interesting symbol or placeholder because the lotus, you know, comes out of the pond, the swamp, and it has a certain, it represents a kind of purity. But the important thing is that this purity arises from right here and now, from the messiness of our life. So this is a useful symbol too. It's that, oh, I don't have to go somewhere that's pure, like some pure monastery, become a pure monk or a nun away from this troubled worldly existence where people expect me to have a nice car or, you know, important ideas and opinions. But right here in the messiness of our lives, there's 
purity can arise. So that's a that's a useful symbol. There, uh, even even the retreat, even our meditation practice, sometimes is nothing more than a symbol or a placeholder. So even though <clears throat> we're in a dry spell and we sit down and our mind just takes off and we worry about something or we do this or we do that, but we're not really doing this inward turning. Even so, just the remembering of the practice, just the returning to the cushion or the chair or showing up at the center or coming on the retreat, even when our mind is really caught up in its conditioned habits, it can be a very powerful placeholder reinforcing the intention to turn within, even when we can't turn within. We can't quiet the mind. We can't look clearly at what's going on and see that it's just messiness. So even when we can't do that, we can still reinforce our faith, our intention to do this. So it's... it's uh, it's important never to disrespect people who maybe don't have what you would consider a meditation practice or a deep spiritual life that are quite devotional. Because, not always, but often this devotional energy is a seed. It's basically saying to ourself uh, that there is purity. There is freedom. I may not know how to realize it. I may not even know where it is. I may not even know where it exists, what direction it exists. But I have faith, I have confidence that it's somewhere. Now, a lot of us might th kind of like boohoo that as some kind of idealism. But there's real power in that faith. And without that faith, someone is likely to just be cynical or uh, basically just live as an animal, just trying to survive, trying to get as much as they can for themselves. So we have to respect whatever kind of step in the direction of freedom that we're able to make or another person is able to make. We need to respect that and understand that human beings can just do what they can do. And depending on the particular conditions of a person's life, all that may be possible for us at a given time is simply to have a symbol for the possibility of true happiness or freedom. And then we have to practice being content with that and really working just with that. And then when conditions change, we've got some momentum that faith is real moment, momentum. It's like there are many examples of people who had all kinds of difficult circumstances, you know, maybe had a lot of children or a lot of illness and weren't able to practice, but kind of maintained the faith. And then when the conditions changed, the practice developed very quickly because they had faith in this particular path that there's something to do with the mind. Of course, uh, the problem with this kind of faith that's dependent on a placeholder solely and not so much dependent on uh, not so much arising out of direct experience is that it can fall into attachment, you know, where we cling to the symbol. So our devotion, uh, we basically, you know, that old Zen phrase of the finger pointing to the moon and we start getting attached, clinging to the finger pointing to the moon and we forget about the moon. We forget what the finger is pointing to, what the Buddha represents. So we might be very devotional and bring flowers and burn incense, leave fruit for the Buddha, the statue, but we, we have no idea what it means anymore. Even that it means 
purity, or even what that might refer to, what purity might refer to. There's such a poignant example. I, I mentioned I read um, an article about Mother Teresa recently in Time magazine, and, I, and it was uh, referring to a recent book that's just being released now. They, I guess they got an early copy of it, and they had some excerpts from this book that's written by a close associate of Mother Teresa. And uh, printing some of the letters she wrote to her mentors people she confessed to. I think all of them were priests, or many of them were priests or bishops. And in those letters she described um, over and over again a kind of desolation or dryness in her practice. And uh, she had a very profound experience um, when she was a younger woman in her 30s. And then wanted that experience to happen again, basically wanting to hear directly from God. And so one of the troubles with placeholders, especially like uh, we had a nice experience, like let's say I had that nice experience back in you know, the early 80s where my mind quieted down and I had some peacefulness, some real peacefulness, and then I could have built an altar in my mind around that experience and really kind of held that as something, you know, some kind of beautiful, mystical, important experience. And wanting it back. And I certainly don't know Mother Teresa's practice, and I'm not criticizing it or judging it at all. I really don't have a sense of it. But but what it reminds me of is this phenomenon where there's a, there is a profound experience or what at the time is a profound experience, and we get caught by it. We go to a monastery, or we go to a retreat, or we hear a talk, and something happens. And then we take, instead of uh, transforming that experience into real faith that freedom is available right now, we get stuck with the conditions that surrounded that experience. The place, the teacher, the words that were said, the thoughts we had about the experience. And we can get really stuck there. So it's a, this part of faith, you know, using symbols, using our memory, I would consider this in the same place. It's like one of these very tricky places in our practice, but a place that can't be avoided. Because there's so much uh, useful energy in creating a placeholder for this possibility. And what we want are more and more sophisticated placeholders so that there's a real point in the placeholder actually has some important information embedded in it. It's like with our memories of, of moments of freedom, for example, those memories can go in the direction of sort of uh, idealistic visions, you know, where we kind of uh, elaborate the situation and paint it, make it nice and sort of beautiful. Or we can practice turning that memory into uh, something. It's basically like Milarepa said, this is the teaching of the Dhamma. So what we remember is how that experience came to be. We remember the, the conditional nature of that moment of awakening or that moment of freedom. So it reminds us to do what we did back then. Instead of kind of worshiping that particular moment, it's an inspiration to replicate it right here and now. This is, these are the, uh, the kind of placeholders that are really useful for us.
So in this sense, especially in this particular tradition of Buddhism, and then especially as it's been uh, transferred, as it has transferred here to the West, because we didn't pick up a lot of the symbols and a lot of the rituals and a lot of the stories that existed in Asian countries like Sri Lanka or Thailand or Burma, Cambodia, Laos. Basically, what we have is formal sitting practice and retreat practice. And it's interesting how they're, they're both placeholders or symbols for us and they're practices for us, too. So, in a way, it's good because most of us Westerners are pretty pragmatic people as opposed to, well, maybe, I don't know if that's true, but at least we have a pragmatic bent. And so, it's nice that in this tradition, what we worship, so to speak, is sitting down and using the mind to look at the mind. And we worship retreats. I mean, if you hang around Vipassana people enough, people who are into this tradition of Buddhism, inevitably they're going to ask you, well, have you done any good retreats lately? When's your next retreat? How many retreats have you done? What's your longest retreat? Have you practiced in Asia? <laughs> you know, or they're asking, you know, are you able to be, you know, have a way of sitting every day? How long do you sit? This is what we talk about. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's like I said a few minutes ago, it's very easy to get attached to this, you know, and basically say my sitting practice is bigger than your sitting practice. Or compare ourselves, you know, oh, he sits so still, or he sits so long, or she's been on so many retreats. But still, as a symbol, it can be quite useful. And what we want to do is we want to make retreats as a symbol and our daily sitting practice as a symbol. We want to infuse in it real meaning. Like we want it to have this feeling of both um, like, like deep trustworthiness, like I really trust going on retreats. It may be hard but I really trust them. Sometimes you hear, especially experienced practitioners, that's what they say. If you ask them the inevitable question, how was your retreat? Which is like one of these questions we should never ask each other, but we do anyway. But if you ask a, a seasoned person, how was your retreat? They'll have a, an answer like, it was difficult, but really good. You know, it was a difficult retreat, but it was really good. It was really good to be there. I'm so glad I did it. So whether the retreat was full of really nice experiences or full of really painful experiences, the real answer to that question is, it was really good to do. So that's one of the things we want to infuse our daily sitting practice and our retreat practice. We want to, that's the part we want to remember. So when we hear the word retreat or sitting practice, synonymous with that should be this feeling of real wholesomeness and trustworthiness. Like, this is a good thing to do. This is a good use of time. This I trust is always worth the time to go on retreat, to sit. And there should also be infused in this symbol a kind of wholesome fear. Like, uh, uh, like it's taking us to our edge. It's medicine, but this is medicine that's uh, a little scary. It should have that feeling too. So on the one hand, it has this feeling of being like, this is the right thing to do, this is wholesome, this is something to trust. But at the same time, it should, uh, it should feel like uh, a little scary for us. <laughs> So that, uh, that, that fear, you know what it does? It, it really brings up respect. Like we respect our practice. It's a kind of humility around our meditation practice and around retreat practice. Just like we'd have some humility if, 
you know, we were asked to go on an adventure that we hadn't done before, climb a mountain or go to a country that we're not used to. Or, you know, we'd, we'd have some respect. We'd really prepare. We'd learn the language if we could, or we'd make sure that we've read about people who've done it before. And uh, we have the same thing about meditation practice. Like we're doing something that uh, is, is a little dangerous. And so we want to be really prepared to do it right. We want to be clear about the instructions. We want to have the proper supports. Put everything in line. Get everything ready. So this is just an encouragement for the way to use this retreat for the rest of the days that we have. And and each particular sit and each particular walking practice each particular meal, I mean, basically every part of our retreat experience, but especially the sits, because they'll be our placeholder when we're away from the retreat, our daily sit. And to infuse it with a kind of respect and awe, humility, to infuse it with a kind of trustworthiness, like really seeing that it's pure. It's like the, the real beautiful thing in our life, this sitting practice where we're manifesting a great purity. Because, you know, in, in the rest of our life, a lot of less wholesome habits get triggered all the time. Neediness, fear, aggression, competition, uh, dullness or distraction. I mean, a lot of these tendencies get triggered all the time. But in our sitting practice, we're not... I mean, those, of course, arise a lot, but that's not... What we're, that's not the intention in our sitting practice. The intention is for clarity to arise and forgiveness and acceptance to arise and peacefulness and stillness to arise. So our intention is very different. And once we have this placeholder, the nice thing is, is we can infuse all our good intentions there. It's like every time we understand something good, we can connect it with retreat and with sitting. Somehow, so it it really holds that. And so when we sit, then that, it gets triggered. I mean, one of the great things about having sat almost every day for the last uh, 20, almost 25 years now, I guess, um, is when I sit down now, it's like uh, it's like my mind and body associate sitting with a lot of wholesome things, and so a quality of release and bliss is like even when I'm really in a bad place, it's like just beneath the surface. It's like my mind has to work pretty hard not to feel a lot of goodness when I'm sitting. Because for so many years and so many days and so many hours, I have practiced making this form, making this ritual the placeholder for everything that I understand is good and pure. And so now it has some real power to it. And it's, uh, I have a lot of confidence and faith because then then my practice delivers. And so that really helps with the faith. It's like you sit down, and even though my mind may be, uh, for periods of time, or even all the time, caught, there's still something else happening that that the mind is aware of, which is basically the pervasive experience that being caught is okay. Being a deluded human being is okay don't need to struggle with all the imperfections, with all the complications, with all the pain. So it's like the two coexist. It would be nice if only one of the two coexisted. (laughs) But if you're going to have the messiness, it's really nice to have some sense that it's not a problem. And that's what we can do. And especially on retreat, we can build some momentum. 
So be on the lookout for just going through the motions. I mean, sometimes in a retreat, that's all we can do is go through the motions, just keep showing up. But when you have some more of that faith energy, more confidence, a sense of what's good, a sense of what's uh, beyond the conditions of the mind, the conditions of the present moment, then really connect that with sitting and being here on retreat. It's like we did in the metta practice today where we appreciated the goodness that we were seeing and really connect that with sitting practice and with being on retreat practice so that they become associated with one another. Now, we all know, I, I hope, that freedom isn't dependent on sitting or retreats. But freedom is dependent on developing confidence. And in order to develop confidence, we need placeholders. Otherwise, we'll forget and we won't have any way of remembering. And then when we forget, we'll forget for a long time. But the more effective our placeholder is, the long, the shorter period of forget, for forgetfulness. So we want to have that, want to basically develop the rituals or the placeholders that remind us of what's possible. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.